Have a seat. You know, in the last uh, two weeks here uh, at the Vine in our Exodus series, we've been situating, uh, situated in two incredibly important chapters, uh, chapters 19 and 20 of Exodus, which really are a pivotal turning point in the whole narrative of the story. Israel is free. Uh, God has brought them out of their slavery for over 200 years and has brought them to Mount Sinai. And he's brought them to Mount Sinai because he wants to fellowship with them personally. He wants to connect with them face to face, if you will. And in Mount Sinai, chapters 19 and 20, God begins to redefine the identity of a broken people. Because up until that point, Israel was carrying around still their Pharaoh identity. Slavery has stripped them of who they truly are. And God gathers them at Mount Sinai in chapters 19 and 20, and he speaks to them about who they really are. Chapter 19, as we saw two weeks ago, he says, you're a kingdom of priests and you're a holy nation. Israel needed to understand that they had a function to connect God and the world together. They had a function to to walk on on behalf of the imitation of God in the world, to be his hands and his feet around them. But they understood their call to separateness as well. They're called to holiness, to represent something of the heart of God in this place. And then in chapters 20, as we saw last week, we, we see that God begins to speak to them about how they are to interact with him, with themselves, and with one another, to form, if you will, a worshiping community. And in chapter 20, we see he gives the Ten Commandments, as we know of them, these ten words in the Hebrew, this idea of what it is to love God, to love ourselves, and to love one another. And through all of this, what God's trying to do is say, there's an identity that I want you to hold now as a free, worshiping community. And that identity is important because when you come to know yourself as children of God, you can then live out of that identity in the world around you. God brings them to himself so that he can then send them back to the world. He had to bring them and purge them out of the brokenness of the slavery of the world, bring them to himself so that in relationship with him and in receiving their identity in him, they could then go and serve the world, bring the world into its fruition by saying there's an alternative way to live. That there's a new hope that's found in this idea of who God is and his character in the world. And what we've been seeing over the last two weeks is it's the same for us. That we, the church today, have the same call on us that God brings to Israel as they're gathered around Mount Sinai. We ourselves have been taken out of a place of slavery. The slavery of our sin. And we've been brought to Christ Jesus. And in relationship with Christ Jesus, our Mount Sinai, if you will, we receive the law, not written on tablets of stone anymore, but by his spirit, written on our hearts. And out of that, we can now live as a worshiping community in the world around us, going out into Hong Kong and saying, we believe a church can change a city. We believe that God and who he is and his character and the narrative he creates for this world has something to say to the brokenness of this world. And so we're a sent people. And what I want to talk today about with you, and and I'm going to talk really passionately today. So if you don't like passion, I apologize beforehand. But I'm passionate because I'm talking today about the church. It's the one thing I love the most, the church. And all of its frailty, and all of its brokenness, and all of its challenging diversity, the church is God's hope in the world. And as we see what happens in the next 11 chapters of the story, we see some important things that we need to understand about what it is to be Christ's hands and feet in the world that he's planted us in. Chapters 21 to 31 are actually 10 chapters where God expands on this idea of what it means to be a worshiping community. 
And in there, you see actually three critical things. The first in chapters 21 to 24 is a continuation from God out of the Ten Commandments of how Israel should form and work together, how they should love one another. And he speaks to them about their social responsibility. He speaks to them about their equity that they're supposed to have amongst each other, how they're supposed to handle property and laws amongst themselves so that they can truly be an equitable and just community in an unjust world. And then chapters 25 to 27 and chapters 30 and 31, God speaks to them about a new thought. He says, I want you to create a place of worship. It, it comes to be known as the tabernacle in the rest of the Exodus story, in the rest of the Old Testament. And the tabernacle essentially was a tent of meeting, but it was a complex tent. And for a bunch of chapters, God speaks to them about how they are to create this tent and the artifacts that are going to go in that tent so that it can become a place of worship. So that whilst they're a nomadic community and before they go to establish the temple in Jerusalem many years later, they would have a place to come to to worship their God. And then in chapters 28 and 29, the third thing God speaks to them about is the priestly class amongst them. He says, set aside people who can serve in the tabernacle, the very people who would eventually go and serve in the temple, and these ones will serve the worship life of that community. And in chapters 21 to 31, we see a picture really of God's perception of what a worshiping community on earth should look like, what the church, if you will, should look like. How we should be just and loving and kind and equitable amongst each other to model something in the world. How we are to know that our identity at its very heart is to be a worshiping community. And what it means to be worshipers on earth. And then out of that, what it means for us to be a mission-focused community of people. We do not gather every week for 90 minutes in this room just so that we can feel good. I'm not interested in building a church where you come to feel good. Oh, I'm going to preach on this one for a moment. I hope you enjoy coming to the vine, okay? But my purpose is not to preach. Our purpose to do what we do here at the vine is not designed just so that you feel a little bit better about your life. It's designed to change a city. And in order to change a city, we have to understand what it is that we're called to as believers in Christ. And so 21 to 31 shows us that. But in 32, chapter 32 of Exodus, we see perhaps what is one of the most horrendous things happen in the whole of the Exodus story itself. And in what happens to Israel in Exodus 32, we see what I would call are the three greatest temptations that exist for any church to weaken and disempower it for the way in which it wants to change the society around it. Three things in that chapter that show us the way in which the enemy is at work to disempower and weaken the body of Christ for its purposes in the world. And so this is why I'm gonna teach passionately today because I love the church, I love you, and I believe the church can change a society, but these three things we're looking at today, I'm gonna say this up front, are three things that I think we struggle with here at the Vine sometimes. I think we struggle with these things as a community, as a congregation, I know that I personally struggle with them as a person, individually. And I wonder as I unpack them, whether you might resonate with that a little bit. And I think, therefore, God might want to do some healing and some change and transformation in us 
where we can recognize what the enemy is trying to do to disempower us, stand against it, so we might truly be Christ's hands and feet in a city. Does that sound interesting to anyone here? You're right. Wonderful. There's one thing that sits behind all three of those temptations, and it's the one thing that we see happen in Exodus 32. Introduce you you to that one thing. Let me take you back once again to Mount Sinai. It is within the shadow of the great Mount Sinai itself that the darkest moment of the Exodus story occurs. Exodus 32 is a brutal chapter, outlining idol worship, sin, burning anger, punishment, and even death. For for the reader of the Exodus narrative, it's actually shockingly jarring coming off the back of such great chapters as Moses' ascent up the mountain and the giving of the law and his ongoing presence with his people. I mean, from the intimacy of God with them to his burning anger against their sin. Now, all of this is a stark reminder to us of one of the most important messages of the whole Exodus journey, and that's this, that so often the most damaging slavery that happens to us is the slavery of the heart. Egypt had one of the largest and most complex pantheons of gods of any civilization in the ancient world. Over the course of ancient Egyptian daily life, hundreds of gods and goddesses could be worshipped at any one time. These gods were assumed to be present throughout the world, capable of influencing natural events and the course of human lives. So connection with these gods was of paramount importance to ancient Egyptians, and that connection largely came through physical representations of the gods themselves. So carvings, statues, amulets, sculptures, idols were literally everywhere. And the more idols you had around you, the better you would be able to make a connection to the gods, and therefore the better your life and the lives of your loved ones would be. In modern-day Cairo today, you can still see so much of this kind of ancient idol worship culture. These tourist markets in Old Cairo are a clear example. These various sculptures of Egyptian gods are done out of the most beautiful turquoise found native to this part of the world. And while these are, of course, not designed to be specifically used for worship today, they give you the idea of the kinds of gods that were constantly on display at the time that the Israelites were slaves in this land. It should not surprise us then that Israel struggled to adapt to a new form of spirituality as they emerged out of their slavery and met with God on Mount Sinai and actually received the Ten Commandments. I mean, think about it from their perspective. They had been immersed in an idol worship culture for over 400 years, and that culture had seeped into the very essence of who they were. So as Moses took his time on the top of the mountain, actually Israel grew itchy. They took the gold that they had taken from Egypt and they asked Aaron to form for them a golden calf so they could worship that as a picture of Yahweh, just like they had seen the Egyptians form and worship their own gods in Egypt. I think it's fascinating how we see in Exodus 32 something play out that is actually spiritually significant for the whole of the Exodus narrative. You see, the Exodus is not so much about getting Israel out of Egypt as it is about getting Egypt out of Israel. And it's the same, of course, for us. 
You see, any journey from slavery to freedom is going to require actually the purging from us of any of the cultures or the values or the habits or the brokenness that we embraced in our time of slavery. You see, in the formation of the golden calf, what actually was happening was that Israel was essentially saying that despite all the miracles of God and all the physical liberation that they had received, the chains of slavery and oppression were still tightly entangled around their hearts. And here is what angered God the most about that. They just didn't seem to care. I mean, they were happy to live with this half-baked kind of freedom where they, they had a little bit of what God wanted, but they were still holding on to the brokenness of their past. So when they fashioned that idol of Yahweh, what essentially they were doing unwittingly was remaining locked in their previous slavery. And isn't it great that you and I are so free of all of those idols today? I think what I say in that film is actually really important for us that it's easy for us to settle with a half-baked freedom where we live divided between having elements of God's liberation on the one hand and yet still holding on to our slavery that we've been so accustomed to on the other. And we find ourselves divided between these things. And that, that division means that we live in this half-baked freedom. We experience some of that great release of God, and yet we find ourselves so easily entangled still in the things that hold us back. And what we see in Exodus 32 is that the key to the things that hold us back is this thing called idolatry. The second commandment, of course, that God gives Moses in chapter 20 was to have no idols, no images. And the very first thing that Israel does is that they take an image and they create it in order to worship. And I want to show you a few things in this because I think there's so much for us to learn in our hearts about what it is to be a believer worshiper of God ourselves. Let me read to you Exodus 32 verse 1. It says, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us a God who will go before us. And, for the, and, and for, as for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. I want you to notice the thing that catalyzes God's people into idol worship. It's seen right at the start. It says, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain. We, we actually learn in, in Exodus 24 that Moses was for 40 days and 40 nights up on the mountain. 40 days, 40 nights. That's a pretty long period of time. And Israel are waiting. They thought he was going to go up, meet with God, and come back down. Maybe even in the same day. But it's been 40 days and 40 nights, and their expectations have not been met. They're anxious about what's happened to Moses, their leader. They're wondering what's going to happen in their future. And it fascinates me that the triggers that cause them to move into idolatry is essentially unmet expectations and anxiety for the future. And if you want to think about what are the things that are going to be the most that will trigger you into any form of idolatry in your life, it will be impatience, being out of control, not knowing what's going to happen in your future, anxiety for what's ahead. Those are the key catalysts 
that draw us to try to find something tangible, something we can trust, something that we can build our hope on when the thing that we were building our hope on seems so intangible, so distant, so out there, and we can't quite control it. Are you, are you with me? See, the core of idolatry is this desire to control. Humanity is really bad at being out of control. Well, this hasn't happened on the time frame that I thought it was going to happen on. He's been up there so long. I don't know when he's coming back, if he's going to come back at all. So we're going to take matters into our own hands. If you want to get a sense of what the idols might be in your life, look at what you turn to for comfort when you're anxious or disappointed. Come on, church. You wanna, I, I want to encourage you to do that this week. That's going to be a great devotional time for you and Jesus this week, okay? Have a think about what are the things that you are naturally turning to to find comfort and control and security when you're feeling anxious, disappointed, or your expectations have not been met, whether that's from your spouse, whether it's from your boss, whether it's from God. Those things that we turn to to find stability when our life is not stable is very often the things that we turn into idols. You follow that? Now, notice what happens here next. It says here in this passage, this is what they say to Aaron, Israel. They say, come, make us a God who will go before us. Now, this is fascinating. The, the phrase, will go before us, is the first thing that shows us the first temptation that I think we are susceptible uh, with here that disempowers us as a church. He, they say, Make us a God who will go before us. That phrase, who will go before us, is a phrase that's been used a lot in the Exodus journey so far. God's used that phrase about himself so many times. You are my people. I will go before you and prepare the way. I will go before you and prepare a promised land that is flowing with milk and honey. I will go before you as a pillar of cloud and as a, as a fire during the day. I will go before you. It has been a constant phrase that God has been speaking about the future, the vision, the destiny, the purpose of where God wants to take Israel. And it's fascinating to me that when Israel create a God to worship, they use this phrase, we want this God to go before us. In other words, we want this God to now achieve what this other God had set up for us. You notice this? Now, now this is really subtle. It's really important because what Israel is doing out of their unmet expectations and out of their anxiety for their future, they're basically saying, we have God's promise, but we're not happy that that promise is not coming through how we were expecting it to come through. So we're now going to do it in our way. This is the idolatry of the self. This is saying that I am better than what God is going to do. But notice they still want what God wants. So, so at its very, listen to this church, this is really important. At its very core, identity. Identity is the decision in our lives to basically in the flesh accomplish something that God started in the spirit. Come on church. That at its very heart is what idolatry is all about. It is the desire and the decision to accomplish, to finish in our flesh something that God has started in his spirit. And for some of us, it started well. 
It started out, God spoke to us, he gave us a call, he gave us a vision, he gave us some hope, and and we began out of that place of the Spirit to believe and to pray and to align our priorities towards the thing that God had said. But over time, when, when our expectations got unmet, when we became anxious about our future, where things didn't seem to happen how we quite thought they were gonna happen, it is so tempting for us to finish in the flesh the thing that God started in the Spirit. It is very tempting for us to essentially create an Ishmael process for an Isaac promise. Are you with me? And this is exactly what they're doing here. And they're doing it out of that place of fear, out of that place of not knowing, out of that uncomfortable, not being able to control, I'm going to finish in my flesh what God has started in his spirit because I'm tired of waiting. Some of you in this room, you're trying to finish in your flesh something that God has promised you because you're upset that God hasn't done it in the way you thought it was going to be done. This is not a a new problem for the church. This was a problem that existed right at the start of the church. Paul, writing to the church in in Galatia, he said it this way in Galatians 3.3. Let me read this to you. Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit? Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? See, the idolatry of self is one of the the most powerful idolatries that the enemy brings a church. And and I wanna, as your pastor, be honest with you about this. This is the idolatry I see the most in me. As your leader, the idolatry I see the most in me is me trying to finish in my flesh what God has begun here at the vine. And I know, by the way, this week I'm celebrating, this week is the end of my 10th year as senior pastor here. I became senior pastor in November, first 2013 and I know over those last 10 years that I have on a number of occasions created a golden calf and held it before you as I tried to finish in my flesh what God has started here in his spirit and I can tell you this from firsthand experience it is exhausting to do that The irony is, is that anxiety draws us into taking matters into our own hands. But when you take the things of the Spirit into your own hands and try to finish them in the flesh, it only creates more anxiety in you. And see, the enemy's strategy over you is this. He wants to disempower God's work in your life by turning the very good things of God that God has put in your life and started in your life and turn them into exhausting and tiring things through his work in you. You know, it should, it should sober us to realize that one of the great strategies of the enemy is actually to take the promises of God that are designed to set us free and through the worship of self, turn them into shackles that exhaust and bind us. Listen to this, church. This is what the enemy wants to do. Take the very good promises of God, the things that God has put in us to set us free, And through the worship of self, through the driving of trying to achieve what only the Spirit can achieve, we will essentially burn ourselves out. And the very gifts and the promises of God become shackles that exhaust and bind us. And if you feel a little bit like that today, right at the end of our time together, I'm going to share something that I believe can help to set you free. But I want to show you the second great temptation. Is this helpful still so far for some of you? Here's the second temptation. Aaron then answered them, verse 2, 
Take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed to him and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Fascinating. So Israel says, we want an idol. Aaron, who's the de facto leader in Moses' absence, says, all right, well, take off all the earrings, all the gold that you had taken from Egypt. Take that off. Give it to me. I'm going to melt it down. I'm going to put it in this iron cast. I'm going to create a golden calf, essentially a a bull, a a young bull. I'm going to create that, and that's going to become our idol. Now, the context to this is really important. Because back in Exodus 24, God had spoken from 25 to 27, and in 30 and 31, God had spoken to them about the creation of the tabernacle. And God had said to Moses, we're going to create this place of worship called a tabernacle that the people are going to come to to be able to worship me. And he said, in the construction of this tabernacle, I want you to take the gold that you had plundered from Egypt, and I want you to use that to shape a place of worship. A tabernacle. And this tabernacle will be so glorious because it will be filled with gold and jewels and it will speak of my might and my power and my glory. It will be a reminder to you of the things that I have done in Egypt and the freedom I brought you. This place of worship will lead you into the ability to worship me. Take the gold and fashion a place of worship. Are you following that? Now, interestingly, in the Hebrew, the very same word that Aaron uses here in 32 for making and taking the gold and making the idol is the same word God uses in those chapters to talk about making a place of worship. And in this, you see one of the most powerful, one of the most destructive idolatries that can happen in the church today. And this is it. It happens when we take our place of worship and turn it into our object of worship. Oh, I'm going to have to preach on this one for a moment. In taking the gold that should have been put aside for the creation of a place of worship, Israel takes that gold and they fashion a calf as an object of worship. And when we as a church today take the very thing that was created by God as a place of worship, a place that makes us come so that we can worship Yahweh, and we twist it and turn it and we make the place an object of worship, then we've entered into one of the most destructive forms of idolatry there is and we have disempowered the church for its witness in the world. So when we come in here on a Sunday and we come in with the intention of enjoying experience together which is higher and more valuable to us than the God behind that experience, we've entered into idolatry. When we come in here excited to sing songs and to worship together and to fill an experience of worship together that we think is better than anything else that we've ever experienced and we come excited for that experience of worship and we don't think about the God behind that worship, we have entered into idolatry. When we come in here and we pay lip service to our sin when we ignore the conviction of sin that God brings into our heart through our ability to gather and to worship like this, when God speaks to us and we pay lip service to it and we don't really react to it, we don't really respond to it, we don't really repent of it, we've entered into idolatry. We've made the place of worship our object of worship. I believe that the church is God's gift to change a world. But let me be really clear about this. There is no power in this building. There is no power in the chairs you're sitting in. 
in this lights that you see here. There's no power in the skill of our musicians. There's no power in the words that come from my mouth. The only power that there is, is the power of Jesus. And if we come into church and we fail to worship where the power truly lies, and we worship a subset of that power, and we in our human sin make the subset of the power the power that gets to be worshipped, then we need to repent. Then we are so caught up in idolatry that we have disempowered the effectiveness of the church. They take the gold and they fasten an object of worship when they should have been using that gold to create a place of worship. Let me encourage you with this. Take the gold that is inside of you and create a place of worship. Here's the third thing. They say at the end here in verse four, then they said this, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. This is really fascinating to me. The third thing they do in this process of idolatry is that once the golden calf is then presented before the people, they say these words to the whole of Israel, this is your God, and they, they, they actually then define who this God is. They say, this is the God who brought us up out of Egypt. Now this is really interesting because the God that brought them up out of Egypt is what God? Yahweh. Yahweh has brought them out of Egypt. So they present this calf and notice what they do. They present this calf as the physical earthly representation of Yahweh. Which is really interesting because we think idolatry, by its definition, is the exchange of worship of one God for the worship of a completely different God. But actually, the most destructive and subtle and most powerful form of idolatry is not exchanging the worship of Yahweh for the worship of something else. It is reducing who Yahweh is into a golden calf. They've said, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt, but we're not comfortable. We're not happy with God being distant and in a cloud on a mountain. We want a God who we can see, who we can physically hold, who we can reduce down into something that we can understand. We want to domesticate God, Israel says. And the greatest idolatry that happens in the church today is the domestication of God. It is fashioning a God who fits within our comfort levels. And when we fashion a God who fits within our comfort levels, we have basically exchanged God for a changed God. For over 15 chapters, God has been showing himself to Israel in might and power, in the plagues, most of them which weren't pretty and were quite uncomfortable. In the reality of the parting of the sea, and a, and a God who can hold all creation in his hands. And then they come to Mount Sinai to personally meet with God, and now they witness a God who's thunder and lightning, who shakes the ground around them, who Moses goes up and disappears into a cloud and is up there for 40 days and 40 nights. And in all of that, Israel is thinking to themselves, I'm not sure I can handle this kind of God. I, I'm not sure if I fully understand this kind of God. This God is not controllable. This God is somewhat unpredictable. This God is so powerful that it is beyond my understanding of what power is, and I'm not comfortable with that, so I will take the gold and I will fashion God down into something that I can comfortably understand, grasp, control. The greatest idolatry you will ever do is to recast God into something you can handle. 
God is not to be handled, he's to be worshiped. Come on, church. And if we at the vine, if we do our best to try to place God into some comfortable box that we've always known him in, in the last 30 years of our existence as a church, God is constantly wanting to try and break out of the expectations and the molds that his people put him in. That doesn't mean that we can't know Christ. Of course we can know him. And we can see his character. And we can trust what the word says about him. We can find ourselves rooted in comfortable ideas of theology and knowing who he is. All that is absolutely true. But the temptation the church has, what I think the enemy does in trying to push the church, is to say, we want a God who is always comfortable. One of my, one of my favorite theologians and writers uh, in the 21st century is C.S. Lewis. If you've never read any of C.S. Lewis's stuff, I can't recommend it more in there's this incredible book that he wrote, um, one of his most famous, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where he writes about these children who find this wardrobe in their uncle's house, and they go through it into this incredible land called Narnia, where there's a fight between good and evil happening. And C.S. Lewis writes it in such a way to present what the kingdom of God is like. And there's a lion in this particular Narnia who is the representation of Jesus Christ. And, and then there's all these other animals who talk. It's a fantasy thing, okay? So there's all the animals that talk. And these three children go into that land and they discover a world that they didn't know. And there's this one moment where Susan, one of the children, is talking to a beaver. The beaver's talking. Yes, it's fantasy. <laughs> and they're talking together. And I want to read this part to you. It says this. This is uh, the beaver speaking. Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. When a church tries to domesticate God and make him safe, we've made a golden calf. He's not safe, but he is good. And his goodness, his goodness is what changes a city, not his safeness. God is not Gandalf on a cloud. He's a refining fire in our hearts. That's who he is. And so these three things, these three temptations towards idol worship that I think every church faces, the temptation to exchange God, to change him and to make him into a way that we understand him, the temptation to finish in the flesh what God has started in his spirit. The temptation to think that we are the ones that can accomplish it and not him. These temptations that sit behind us and with us all the time, we have to purge these from us if we're truly going to be a church that can change our city. And the question we have to ask is, where's the hope? Where's the hope in this? Well, the hope in chapter 32 is that Moses sees what's happening and God shows him what's happening in the idolatry and Moses petitions and intercedes with God and God changes his heart and doesn't do what he said he's gonna do to his people. We don't have time to look at that today, but we have one more powerful than Moses that is standing in the gap for us in our idolatry and that's Jesus. And Jesus comes before the Lord on behalf of the church today and intercedes on our behalf and stands in the gap for us and says that I am the only image you will ever need. That in Jesus Christ, who has become flesh for us, he has shown us the fullness of who God is. And while there is still mystery and wonder and power and the unimaginable that is in God, which is a beautiful thing, in Christ we get to see what God is truly like. 
And God is saying, I understand that you need something that is tangible to you. So the incarnation, fully God, fully human, is the most tangible expression that we could ever have of God. We no longer need the idols of golden calves because we have the person of Jesus Christ. And when Paul speaks of that hope to the church, he is trying to shift them from their idol-worshiping temptations that are there to disempower them and set up for them a worshiping Jesus-centric church community. And I want want to finish by showing you um, his vision of such a community. This is found from Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image, notice how he talks about it, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all the things hold together. And he is the head of the body. That's the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. And that at every think he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have, notice this, his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy, notice this, in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. That's our hope, being freed from idolatry, that we can stand before Christ because of Christ, holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established firm, not moved by the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to you, every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. In other words, Paul's saying, see Jesus. If you want an idol, if you want an image, if you want to look towards something that's tangible, see Christ, because in Christ he has reconciled all things to himself. And if the church lays down its worship of worship, its worship of preaching, its worship of of being relevant in the world, and turns back to the worship of Jesus, we will find where the power truly lies to change the city that we so long for. Oh, I love the church. But I also recognize the way in which the enemy is at work, even against us here at the vine. May we, as individuals and as a community, deal with the idols that we're tempted to embrace. And as we come to Christ to deal with those idols, may he empower us for the work that he has for us. Would you stand with me? And I want to pray over you. And I want to commission you into this work. And maybe if you're comfortable, you could just open your hands as I pray for you. Father, in this room, there are many things that we hold in our hearts in this moment. And those things are on the individual level, in every heart. And those things are on the community level within the church body. And Lord, we're grateful for this community of faith, for the vine. And we're grateful that you've called us to be community together here. We're grateful for every person in this room that calls the vine their home church in Hong Kong. And Father, we believe in the power of the church. 
not in the power of a building, in the power of programs, in the power of Jesus Christ who is alive in the church today. And Father, we want that power to be seen in Hong Kong in this time, in this hour, like never before. Lord, we pray that you would purge your church. Lord, that's a powerful prayer. We pray that you would purge the vine of the idols that it holds, that you would show me and the other leaders here what those idols are and bring us to our knees in repentance. You would show our elders what those idols are and you would bring the elders to their knees in repentance. You would show individuals in this church what those idols are and that they would humbly submit them to the leadership here to repent and pray through. Father, we come corporately to you in this moment recognizing that we are sinners and therefore there is idolatry amongst us, but recognizing your grace and your goodness that we can stand before you, as the scriptures say, without blemish or accusation. Thank you for the blood on the cross of Jesus that does that for us. And Father, I pray for every individual here too. And I want you to take a moment just between you and God to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you of any personal idols that you may hold. And as he shows you these things, it's not to condemn you, it's to invite you into great freedom. It's perhaps to even pull back the curtain and reveal to you a way in which the enemy is trying to hold you back from all that God has promised for you. And our individual idols are things that we now bring to God in, in knowledge that in Christ, in his death and resurrection, we find freedom, that we can repent. I wanna invite you into a place of repentance this morning. Let's not pay lip service to what the Holy Spirit shows us individually today. Take a moment. All you have to do is say, Lord, I bring this thing of my life to you and I don't know how to handle it. I don't know how to finish it. I don't know what to do, Lord, but I confess it and I, I ask you to take it from me. I ask that you forgive me for the idolatry that I'm holding in this particular place in my life right now. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Cleanse your church. Purge us, Lord, of the things that shackle and bind us again, that things that drag us back into slavery. Come, Jesus, come.